There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, yeah, looking at this map, I, I mean, Greenland is at least eight times the size of India. India isn't that small. Just, that's a bad map of India. Yeah. Actually, let's just make this podcast about maps. And Mercator projections suck? Yeah, and Mercator projections are terrible. Okay, we're going to talk about Mercator projections for the rest of the podcast. Ready and no, please don't turn away. No, listen, we're not actually doing that. All right, so welcome everyone to... A very special episode of Reconsider. Very special. Very special, in part because it's the, what, third time ever that Xander and I have podcasted from the same place? That's about it, yeah. So Xander is here in Boston for ConsiderCon, which if you haven't heard of it, it's because it was invite only. Sorry. But we are doing our... (laughs) Sorry, you're not cool enough. You're not special. Um, We're doing an experimental convention with a select group this Saturday, the 24th, uh, here in the Boston area. We're very excited, and we'll let you all know how it goes, and hopefully it goes so well that we do a public one next year, and you all get to hear about it. Uh, But Xander flew in early, so we get to do a delightful live, uncut, from the hip episode with you guys. And what we're staring at is... A map of the world. A map of the world. And what we're going to do is literally at a whim, bounce around and talk about what is going on in the world right now. What's interesting and what, you know, what, how do you reconsider what might be going on in each of these places? Because you're probably not getting the full story. And this is particularly fun for us. We've been blabbing a lot about Xander's job at Geopolitical Futures recently and... That's it. So, <laughs> cool, cool story, bro. Thanks. <laughs> we've the, been talking a lot, and well, you know, we've been talking a lot. We have, the and end. yeah, the end. Thanks. So, first housekeeping. Yes. Uh, we are part of the Agora Podcast Network, and we don't do the thinking for you. And the Agora Podcast Network uh, has a podcast of the month. This time, it is American Biography by Tom Daly. And my American American biography is about the it's about the people in the United in the history of the United States that were critical to either major events that you've heard of or major changes that you haven't heard of, but what you definitely haven't heard of is these people. 
So, you know, throughout history, these sort of great men and women get sung. But what about the unsung heroes, the people who busted their chops to make sure that, oh, I don't know, the ammunition was there during the, you know, Bunker Hill fight. Um, All these sorts of people that had a major role to play in what made the United States the United States and what shaped us since that, uh, you know, that fateful Declaration of Independence, all of those finally get their chance at stardom with Tom Daly. American Biography, go check it out. So, we're looking at the map of the world. Where do you want to begin, Eric? China. 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 <laughs> China. Um, so, uh, as we all know, there's absolutely nothing of interest going on in China. <laughs> So we'll just skip right on over that and uh, go to Brunei Darussalam. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Oh, my God. Uh, Actually, just today, as of recording the podcast, some extraordinarily big stuff happened in China. Uh, In addition to all of the reforms that uh, President Xi has already been implementing, which have already been of a rather large nature. Huge, even. Huge nature. Huge nature. The the ones today were even huger. Uh, she, he did a couple of things. One, he folded in a large civilian police force along the border into the People's Liberation Army. So taking them from a civilian police force into a military police force, of course, which he has direct command over the, the military in China. For liberating, of course. For liberating. Well, they did do liberating back when it was a liberation, uh... Well, actually, the PLA was, like, in response to the Red Guards, wasn't it? Yeah. And never mind. It's not important. Actually, you know, it is important. Whether they were liberating definitely depends on your point of view. You know, go to Chinatown <laughs> in San Francisco and see how many PRC flags are hanging yeah, out there. that's a good point, right? That was one thing. The other thing, she radically changed the structure of the Chinese government today. He took uh, what, what are called a number of leading groups, which are essentially informal committees comprised of Communist Party members that have been very influential in deciding upon which policy should be set. And he took those group, which, groups, which are informal groups, and officially declared them formal commissions, so organs of the Chinese government state. So basically what we have right now in China is the Communist Party, which sets the policies, and the Chinese government, the Chinese state, which implements the party's policies, and you have Xi sitting at the head of both of those entities. It is really at this point truly a dictatorship. She has consolidated an enormous amount of power. A lot of people will say arguably since the Party Congress in October, but of course it's been going on for a lot longer than that. It's just a lot of things have become formalized in the last couple of months, and today we saw even further steps forward. Yeah, you thought China was a dictatorship before. Wait and see. We're going full dictatorship this time, and, you know, you might be asking, well, why is she doing this? Is he just a power-hungry maniac? And of course, one of the interesting things about China is often it's it's been a very long time since a purely power-hungry maniac <laughs> has been in charge. You know, you think of people like Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein that are, you know, they're power-hungry maniacs, right? That's just what they do. They're like, you know what? We're just going to stab people with swords and... Have them walk in front of my children for entertainment. That was the thing Saddam Hussein did. Maniac, right? She's not a maniac. Um, And to a large extent, she needed the consent. I mean, to a large extent, 
there's no too large extent about it. To a complete extent, she needed the party, the Communist Party, to be on board with this idea of him consolidating power. And to some extent, we're using dictator in even the most classical sense of the term, you know, the Roman dictator. Like in a that. time of yeah. crisis, one man was given the entire apparatus of power and could do, I mean, Rome could literally do anything, walk around and be like, that guy, dead, gone, right? Mm -hmm. And in this being in a, a republic that hated kings, they still had this thing for emergencies. And of course, in China, it's going to be a little bit tougher to undo this because they don't have a six-month timer on it. But why does she need all this power? There's, you know, in the thing is, like, China has been, you know, a lot of people have been predicting the economic demise of China for a long time. And China keeps surprising them by chugging through, like, even during the 2008 fiscal crisis, their economy continued to grow, albeit slower. But the thing about China is that China has a very long history and a very long memory. And China remembers that its history is one of cycles of unity and dissolution. And everyone in, you know, Chinese people know their history about it, like, as well as Texans know their history, which is impressive because the history of Texas is much shorter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're in China, people are very, like, everyone is very cognizant of this. And why do you, you know, why might China be at risk of dissolution right now? The risk is that its economic system is not going to continue to grow into the future. And if it doesn't grow, why might it start to, you know, if the economy in China falters, why might it start to uh, dissolve as a country? Well, there's this thing that economists like to do, which is to pretend that economics is the thing unto itself. Mm. And it's not. It's really, it's not. You don't have economics devoid of a political system in which those economic transactions, the economy, exists and takes place. You, you do not, in reality, have separation of economics from politics to a degree. And in China, if you have the collapse of the economy right now, they have ten, the country has a tendency to have resistance from the ground up. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people in China are still not extremely well off. They've been doing a lot better. I think um, I was looking at some of these stats on the World Bank the other day, and there's a very small percentage of people living under $1.90 a day now, which is the international poverty line. But you still have like 10-ish percent under 320 a day and quite a bit under 550, which, you know, is not awful for China, but it's still pretty poor. And there's just a lot of people who have not shared in the economic wealth that has been generated in the country since Deng's reforms in the uh, beginning of the 80s. And in the past, China has suffered from, I mean, literally dozens of peasant revolts yeah. in response to the government's inability to prov you know, provide economic welfare for them. And one of the things that sort of everyone in the West that thinks about this a lot believes has prevented that since the rise of the Communist Party has been the fact that China has grown so quickly that either one, people are right now seeing an improvement in their well-being, or two, believe that that improvement is going to spread to them in time. As long as things continue to grow and the growth is not too isolated along the coasts because that is where most of the growth is. But as long as it's not too isolated among the coast, 
there is a belief that, you know what? We've been a really poor country for a very, very long time. And finally, there is a regime that's bringing us into modernity and bringing us a sense of prosperity. As long as it continues to do so, life will be fine. But if it fails to do so, there may be trouble ahead. So the, the conventional wisdom is that China is particularly worried about suffering an economic downturn. Now, why might it be as sufficiently worried right now about suffering an economic downturn that it's willing to make someone a dictator? Oh, man. How much do we want to talk about China's economy? Uh, let's give it a minute. Okay. Uh, the Chinese government has great incentives to keep people employed because if they don't, they face resistance and unrest. They have done this in part by encouraging state banks to lend really a lot of money to state-owned enterprises that are not very competitive and therefore not extremely profitable in order to keep people employed. Of course, money runs out at some point. Um, so they're kind of faced with like printing more money or finding new and creative ways to steal people's money, which is what they did in the last banking crisis when they just depreciated everyone's savings to keep this lending going to, to, to companies. But essentially now there's a lot of debt. There's a lot of debt tied up in the real estate market, and a lot of the real economy is tied up in the real estate market, and there's a real estate bubble, and the risk is that if prices go down really quick, then you have instantaneously a lot of the collateral that supports, real, uh, supports this debt disappearing. You have developers not being able to repay their debt, and people start, can't pay back their debt. Where's the money gone? Oh, no, it's a liquidity crunch. And that's how bad crises start is, is debt tied to real estate markets. Mm, just like 10 years ago here in the United States. Very similar. Also similar in certain ways to Japan's crisis in the early 90s. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, what's interesting, of course, is that if the collateral, if that real estate drops in value, then the people who have loans based on that real estate can't pay back the people they owe money to, and then those folks can't pay the people they owe money to, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the liquidity crunch is really no one can pay anyone now. Money freezes up, and the economy sort of shuts down, which was the reasoning, in fact, behind uh, the... It was the reasoning behind QE3, right? Was increasing liquidity in the United States market because we were facing a major liquidity crunch. No, that was increasing, uh, QE3 was increasing money availability. QE is quantitative easing. Yes. Uh, which is what the Federal Reserve did after the crisis. I don't know what QE3 was in response to specifically, but the, oh, the bond buying program that was quantitative easing was to provide liquidity to the market. Aha, I knew it. I think we should move on from China. We should. In fact, the, uh, the challenge that China is, one of the new challenges that China is facing right now is that uh, President Donald Trump of the United States recently announced tariffs not only on steel and aluminum, but also specifically on Chinese goods being imported to the United States to the effect of $60 billion. Uh, as of time of recording, the United States stock market said, we don't like trade wars. Uh, even though the president does, and the stock market is down. What's interesting, of course, about many of these tariffs is that uh, they don't apply to the United States uh, local trade partners in North America, that being Canada and Mexico, because of NAFTA. Of course, you know, until NAFTA gets renegotiated, allegedly. Um, and they also are not going to apply to Australia, which is the United States' biggest overseas supplier of aluminum and a good friend. 
and things would not be good for Australia if they couldn't provide aluminum. Meaning that, really, as far as steel providers go, we've got local steel, Mexican steel, Canadian steel, and... Chinese steel. Chinese steel. And so it seems more and more that these tariffs are specifically designed to target China. I think looking at this from a uh, favorable light, you're saying, ah, Donald Trump is doing what Donald Trump does best as a business person, which is making a unilateral move to put someone in a tough situation and make it miserable for them to not come to the table and make a deal. Um, and then uh, that move is now a bargaining chip that he's willing to bargain away. And so if you're optimistic, uh, if you're a free marketeer and optimistic, you're thinking this is a bargaining chip that he wants to bargain away with China in order to get China to uh, become a freer trading partner. Because it turns out the rules for who can own what and who can trade what and what the tariffs are between the United States and China are indeed pretty imbalanced. Um, if you're looking at this from a less favorable standpoint, you're thinking, oh my God, here come the trade wars. This is no good. Uh, tariffs are bad for everyone. Mercantilism didn't work so well. It worked well at first, right? Because, I mean, Great Britain rose on a mercantilist system in its colonies, but then after a while, it's... Anyways... Um, it failed when the world got more globalized. But I actually don't know if these tariffs are as bad as everyone is making them out to be. Ooh. Everyone is saying it's the beginning of the trade war, of a trade war, and admittedly, tariffs are step one in a more protectionist regime, right? But you can't just say tariffs are a thing and therefore there's this other thing. You have to look at the scale of the thing. $60 billion, eh, it's a lot of imports. But... How, how, how much in terms of total value does the U.S. import from China every year? It depends on the source. I was looking at this earlier today. It's about between 400 and 530 billion. So there's mm. going to be a raise on tariffs of 60 billion out of about 400 to 500 billion dollars worth of U.S. imports from China. And China exports about 2.3 trillion dollars worth of goods to the world. So, you know, a 20% tariff on $60 billion worth of product from China is not going to drive those $60 billion to zero. It might cut it down. Right. Even if it's 50%, that's pretty drastic. But $30 billion on $2.3 trillion worth of exports is not going to make a huge difference to China's economy. And you can say, yeah, well, they're still going to retaliate. They probably will. But the United States ultimately has more leverage, I believe, over China in terms of a trade war position because China is still very dependent on the U.S. as an export market. Um, and while U.S. consumers would be hurt if uh, input uh, costs of inputs went up mm. and imports became more expensive, uh, so daily goods became more expensive, if China started to retaliate enough where real, like, drastic tariffs were levied against them and cut off their exports to the U.S., they would be in a much worse position, in part because they depend on those exports and in part because of the political circumstance we just talked about in China. They need those exports not so that their economy stays cool, but so that their political system doesn't collapse. So I actually... I don't think this is the beginning of a massive trade war. I think it's a shot across the bow rather than a direct hit. And I think we'll probably see some retaliation that's not going to be drastic, that I do think will be aimed at, at Trump's base, a lot of agricultural and farm products. Mm. But I think ultimately there will be a negotiation of some sort between the U.S. and China, and China capitulates. But 
that's my that's my take. Speaking of trade negotiations, we could move on to perhaps the United Kingdom of uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and hopefully it will. Well, maybe <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they're thinking in London it will stay that way into the long term. Brexit negotiations continue, and the biggest sticking point, uh, as far as I understand it, and I'm sure there are people in the UK that are Americans, but the biggest sticking point that I'm hearing about. Uh, in part because my girlfriend is Irish, is the Irish border. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting about the Irish border, of course, is that because the United Kingdom and Ireland are both in the European Union, the people in the Republic of Ireland can cross into Northern Ireland, which is part of a different country, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and... Oh, uh, Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. Yeah. So the people from the country that is Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, can walk into the UK, the Northern Irish part, freely. Right, And so what it has done, one of the things the European Union has done for the Irish question is kind of put it to bed temporarily now because they said, look, yeah, it's part of two different countries and they're, they've got some different rules and you elect different people. But hey, you, like, you know, you just walk across the border and hang out with each other and you've got free trade. Like, it's kind of like being in the same country. Like, maybe we don't have to <laughs> blow each other up about it anymore. And everyone said, you know what, that's mostly fine. The IRA uh, disarmed or at least put their guns in a hole somewhere. Mm. Um, and everyone seemed pretty happy. But the UK decided to leave the EU. And what that means is that you don't have, uh, they're not in the uh, free travel zone. What's it called again? Schengen. Schengen, yeah. They're not in the Schengen anymore. So... Uh, for those of you who are live in Europe or travel to Europe, uh, as you are familiar, you can walk from Germany into France, and there's no border you know, there's no border guards there to check your passports, which is pretty cool. You can't do that, for example, between the United States and Canada. They have to check your passport, um, and it also, of course, means no no visas or anything, right? You don't need to get permission ahead of time or even on the spot to show up. You just show up, and. That was the case between Ireland and the UK, and it may not be. The, the reason that is complicated, of course, is because, turns out, transit is transitive. So as much as the Brits may be excited about having the Irish walk between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, they may not necessarily want all the Irish coming into the UK, but in particular, one of the things they don't want is everyone else from the European yeah. Union being able to walk into the UK freely. Right now, uh, and into the future, there's no reason why not, they can walk into Ireland freely. And if you can if you can move from Ireland to the UK without a passport, it means anyone from the EU can now enter the UK freely, which was kind of the point in the first place. Oops. Yeah, oops. And so this is a big sticking point, in part in particular because uh, the... Parliament in the United Kingdom right now is not a single party, but is a coalition. And the coalition is between the Tories or Conservatives, led by Theresa May, and also the Ulster Union Party. Now, where's Ulster, Xander? Tell me, Eric. It's in Northern Ireland. Ah. So the Ulster Union Party is a party of union. So they're pro-staying with the UK, but they're Irish. They're from Northern Ireland. And so you have these Northern Irish people that are a fundamental part of the government. Now, they're a small part, but in particular, if the government wants to guarantee that it can get a vote across, it has to, you know, a vote that solidifies what the post-Brexit 
reality is going to be, they have to make sure they get the Ulster Union Party on board. Um, because if the Ulster Union Party is off board, it means that the liberals now have control and they get to decide what happens. So the conservatives Ugh. have to keep the, sorry, not liberals, labor, excuse me, sorry, uh, Canada, they're the liberals, you know. But the, the Tories have to get the Irish part of their, um, of the elected, you know, of, of the parliament to join them. Um, and so it means that what's interesting is Northern Ireland has a surprising amount of leverage going into this, but really nobody knows what to do. You can't halfway a border. Either people yeah. can cross or, or they, they can't. can't. Jinx. Yeah, because you can't like tell ahead of time whether they're Irish. So you have to check everyone's, you know, I know most of them have red hair, but you have to check everyone's <laughs> passports on the way through. So. It's a pain. Nobody knows what the heck to do. It looks like the trade stuff, though, is likely to be worked out in some reasonable way that, of course, the EU, you know, as much as they're grumpy about the UK leaving, of course, they want fairly, you know, good trade terms with them. Nobody's being mm -hmm. punitive. Mm -hmm. And so the UK is looking for a trade negotiation, much like Norway has with the EU. Um, and EFTA. yeah, EFTA. Uh, and, you know, that was one of the reasonings behind uh brexit was that look norway's fine you know they're not part of the eu everything's okay sky didn't fall um but of course uh the pound continues to be low but the uk economy continues to chug on brexit will continue to be a drama going forward uh and and yeah we'll have when when something really cool happens i'm sure we'll have a podcast episode about it yes it would be called something really cool about brexit just happened <laughs> that will be the title that'll be the title where are we going next Let's go to the continent of Africa. Mm. And they say the continent of because it was either today or yesterday a big continent-wide free trade agreement just got passed in Africa that Ooh. comprised something like 40 countries. Interestingly enough, two countries, Nigeria and South Africa, which make up, I think I'm going to mess my numbers up here, but something like 20% of African GDP and a very large yeah. proportion of the population. Nigeria is the most populous country on the continent of Africa, I think like 120 million people or something it's like that. 130. Yeah, 130. It's massive. Yeah. It's as big as Russia. And it's much smaller land-wise. Much smaller. Even, yeah. yeah, even without the Mercator projection. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're looking at this map, and Greenland is as big as Africa. And, yeah. <laughs> and Canada and Russia. <laughs> Yeah, and, and India is, again, tiny, which doesn't About make sense. About the size of Mexico. Because that's on the equator, and it should be actually mapped correctly with this projection, right? Yeah. No. No? Maybe this isn't Mercator. Uh, I don't know which one this is. Anyways, this map <laughs> moderately sucks. But So this free trade agreement went through. Nigeria and South Africa are like, Meh. And it looks like South Africa is going to sign. I don't exactly understand what the hang-up is, yeah. but the new South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, said basically that they are considering it and they were planning to, but they need to check with some stuff. I I need to look into this a little bit more. Obviously, I don't have I don't have the details down, but this is a new continental continent wide free trade agreement that's being held up by a couple of countries. Um, we can drill down on a part of Africa. We can hop somewhere else. That's pretty exciting. Do we know why Nigeria is not doing it? I know nothing about this. I don't either. I, I only read uh, some of the South African news items because I've been following that country a little bit more. Hey, I heard rumors that in South Africa, the government wants to uh, wants to what's it redistribute land owned by white people to black people? Com 
Yeah, it's uh, conf- confiscation without compensation. Mm. So, what is this? It's kind of what it sounds like. Uh, the South African government is considering, and frankly it's been considering for a long while, taking away land, and mainly land, also some property, but mainly land from prim- primarily white South Africans to redistribute to black South Africans. The rationale behind this is there was institutionalized segregation against— Apartheid. Bl- apartheid and non-institutionalized segregation, but still serious. I guess it was institutionalized. It just wasn't institutionalized to the degree that it was under apartheid before apartheid for decades and decades. And really segregation, even if it wasn't institutionalized for hundreds of years before that, since the Dutch arrived. And so, you know, the, uh, the African National Congress, the ANC, is a black political party that for decades under the apartheid Afrikaner government was seen as a terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. Mandela was the commander-in-chief or whatever you call it for Unconto Wisizwe, which is essentially the militant arm of the ANC and was a, an internationally recognized terrorist organization. Um, not because they blew people up, but because they sabotaged infrastructure and, and stuff like that because they... They saw it as an armed struggle. So now the ANC is in power. It's, it's been in power since the 90s as a legitimized political party. And since black South Africans comprise the vast majority of the population in South Africa, they're in charge politically. But as part of the apartheid agreement, the black South African uh, government basically let the white former um, holders of capital and, and industry retain their property and land and gave them constitutional protection of that land. It kind of froze in place the economic arrangement that existed in 94 at the point of apartheid. And so for a long time, people have been saying, like, that's not fair. What the heck? Like, okay, yeah, we we can vote, but we're still living on on these, um, what are they called? I'm losing the word. Um, Town townships. These townships were... A bunch of uh, black South Africans got basically, uh, I mean, it was, it was forced, mass forced relocations. I mean, like three million people were right. forced to, to live in really crowded parts of the country, really shitty, infertile land arrangements. They're saying, eh, this isn't fair. We want more land. So what happened was the parliament um, passed. There's a political party called the EFF. I don't remember what it stands for, um, but it's a minority party. They're far more radical than the ANC, which is kind of, the centrist party, if you want to call it that, they're also the, really the only party. The yeah. EFA, EFF pr- proposed this land confiscation, um, not really a bill, but this this motion. It got watered down a little bit by the NC, but it passed. And what's happening now is they pushed this to a committee that is going to report back by the end of August, August 30th, to decide whether or not to go forward with this idea. So we should know in a couple of months. Yeah, but the, the consequences are potentially interesting because – uh, regardless of your feelings of the justice of it, what what becomes uh, what becomes somewhat complex is okay. You're a white landowner or property owner in South Africa. What do you do between now and August? Do you just liquidate and run, uh, which some are doing? And Australia is actually has actually created um, what's it uh, expedited refugee processing mm. for white South Africans who want to flee before their stuff is all taken. Um, of course, Zimbabwe, yeah. formerly Rhodesia, did the same thing um, in a much less, uh, much less managed process. Guns, guns, yeah. But um, it was a it was an official state policy to redistribute 
uh, white land to black uh, to black people that lived in the country. Um, and part of the problem when it was done then was that the white farm owners were, you know, the inheritors of generations of, you know, farming practice, and they had grown up learning how to tend those farms and use the equipment and do the business part that's necessary of farming. Turns out farming is very hard uh, to do well on mass, yeah. and they, you know, they had reached a level of sophistication that their their yield was X. And, um, Not Y. X. Right. Yeah. And when it was redistributed to a bunch of people that hadn't grown up learning exactly how to do that. Turns out the yield plummeted yeah. and the GDP plummeted and, and there was a major food shortage. Um, so it's definitely one of the things that I am sure the good people of South Africa are cognizant of the history of their neighbor. Um, but it certainly creates, you know, like kind of puts the mm-hmm. economy in a situ- sticky situation that even if you think, you know, or if you decide like this is the really just thing, it's it's what should happen uh, it's a also a very scary thing, not just for the people with mm. the land, but for everybody there. Yeah, because I, fr- frankly, if if there's a path towards civil war in South Africa, the first step is is massive property confiscation. I'm not saying there will be a civil war, mm. but that's got to be one of the things that happens along the way. Massive resistance among the uh, landed property elite. And uh, an uprising against that to enforce whatever the laws is that it passes. I, South Africa almost evolved into a civil war yeah. in the early 90s when the uh, end of apartheid was going on. A lot of South Africans say it was a full-blown civil war. Many thousands of people were killed. Um, yeah. Some say over 10,000 people. Um, it was really quite violent, and it's just not covered that well. But, you know, what's a civil war? How many people need to get killed? I, that's a that's difficult fair. question. Speaking of civil war... Uh, Syria? Syria. This is a topic that I'm actually following pretty closely at work. Uh, Syria has become a lot more than just a civil war. It really, I don't think you can accurately describe it as a civil war anymore now. It is, it is a territory formerly known as Syria that is now the competition ground for regional powers. The regional powers there being... Primarily Turkey and Iran. Russia also involved, obviously. The United States also involved, kind of. Saudi Arabia now at this point involved to a much lesser degree. And Kurdistan hopefuls. Yeah, I think Kurdistan's going to be shit out of luck soon enough here. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, the, the one sad constant truth of the Kurds is that they always get sold out by their former allies. It's also worth knowing there is no such thing as the Kurds. There are many different kinds of Kurds. There are Syrian Kurds. There are Iraqi mm. Kurds. There are different types of Syrian Kurds. It's it's really not a, a homogeneous group of people. Well, and yet now we're are, getting into identity politics because you know it's because well, it's, it's definitely a thing that like you can, you know, like you could say the French are a whole bunch of different people as well. Yeah, but the Iraqi Kurds were allied with Turkey for a while in exporting oil, and while you know Turkey has been at war with. The PKK, which is one faction of Syria, mm. Kurds for decades, and now is at literal war with the YPG, which Turkey claims is the parent umbrella of the terrorist organization PKK. So while they were working with the Iraqi Kurds. So, so what you're saying is that the Kurds aren't united, even in their purpose. Yeah, there is no Kurdish nation right now. Right. Oh, certainly not. Yeah. 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 Um, definitely no nation state, but not even right. a nation yeah, in okay. terms of a nation being a composite identity, a nation state being a composite identity within 
circumscribed territorial bounds. Um, that's that's how we do things at academia, baby. Yeah, sorry, I apologize for that. No, uh, no, no, it's precise. Uh, that's why we use the terminology. Precision. I don't know why I did that. Anyways, so the the big news in Syria in the last two months has been Turkey's invasion of it. Up until this point, the primary actors have been... <laughs> Up until this point, the only people that had invaded Syria <laughs> were the United States, Iraq, Iran, Hezbollah, sometimes Israel, and Russia. But now, also Turkey has invaded. Yes. And, and, and sorry we're laughing, but holy crap, this place. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's truly awful. I, I've kind of been like appointed as the, the point man on, on Turkey and Syria at my day job. And now he drinks more. And now I drink more. Uh, because on some level, you need to follow the, the strategy of it to understand it all, mm. which requires a certain level of detachment. Uh, but then you're also seeing videos of really awful things happening. You know, uh, fighters now put GoPro cameras on their helmets and show you live action photos of battles. Um, it's really, truly, the, the one, the, there's one of a, of a free Syrian army fighter, which is wow, yeah. a rebel fighting Assad. Um, against Assad, yeah. Against Assad. And, uh, I mean, all you see is the dude's gun for a while, but then he comes around the corner and there's a, he has several of his comrades in arms standing next to him. And you notice two things immediately. One, how young they all are, like 20, younger. And two, they're all absolutely terrified no one there looks confident they're all scared witless which makes sense because they could be killed any moment i mean that's the reality of it right um turkey has invaded uh syria about two months ago and up until this point the primary factions were uh multitudinous as eric said but primarily assad trying to retain control of the country rebels against assad uh, which were generally sunni rebels uh, sometimes backed by Saudi Arabia, but not always, and less so as time has gone on. Uh, rebels backed by Turkey, but Turkey hadn't been directly involved. Iran had been supporting Assad. Iran had had actual Iranian troops deployed in Syria, uh, as well as uh, Iranian militia and proxies like Hezbollah and, and other such entities. And Russian air support for Assad as well. Exactly. And and some ground support, but not like in combat roles. It's, right. Yeah. Um, and the U.S. had been supporting the Kurds, which had kind of carved out an independent territory for themselves in the north, including this territory of Fren, which is in the, in the northwest of Syria on the border of Turkey. And as we mentioned, Turkey sees these Syrian Kurdish groups as terrorists. Um, so Syria invaded Afrin uh, with its own army and with support from Turkish proxies in January, late January. And Afrin has fallen now. It is completely in, in Turkish control and Turkey is like, all right, now we're going to go on to the city called Manbij, which is just a little further east of Afrin. I remember following Manbij when the Kurds were taking it from yeah. ISIS because ISIS held. If you look at the, the map right now, um, a good website is isis.liveuamap.com is the one I like to follow. Um, but if you look at that, like all of the territory that's yellow in Syria for Kurdish like was black. Yeah. Because it was all ISIS, and the Kurds have like clawed and nailed and you know bled their way across northern Syria, fighting back ISIS the whole way. And Manbij was a major battleground that lasted for months. And they won. They won. And part of the reason they won, and here's where it gets complicated, 
is because the Kurds in Syria, and let's just call them the YPG right now, mm. uh, which is the acronym for the Kurdish uh, militia group in Syria. That represents the their uh, social, or that, that works under the Socialist Party. Yeah. Yeah. Whose acronym is the PYD. Yes, the PYD. But the YPG is like the militant arm of the Syrian Kurds. Kind of like IRA, Sinn Féin. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The YPG supported by the United States because the United States is like, meh, we've been in Iraq for a while. People didn't seem to like how that turned out so well. But I also, it doesn't seem great that we let this group ISIS take over. So why don't we support the Kurds? They will because f- they're doing a bang-up job killing ISIS. They, they yeah, Fuck ISIS. Um, I, I'll come back to that before we leave Syria. Um, but Syria has been supporting the white... Uh, not Syria. The United States has been supporting the Kurds in the north uh, to, to fight against ISIS. And this, the Kurds have generally been following the U.S.'s instructions because they're heavily dependent on them and don't have a lot of other staunch allies. And they love close air support. Yes, that helps a lot. Yes. Um, and when Turkey was like, we're going to go into Afrin, uh, the United States was like, we have no beef with Afrin. Our operations have nothing to do with Afrin. Uh, it's, not our, it's not our area of concern. And remember that as wacky as Erdogan has gone and as like strange and literally oriental Turkey seems right now, they are a NATO ally. They're a core ally of the United States for the past 70 years. Second largest military in NATO. Indeed. Um, so Turkey came in and took Afrin. And the U.S. has been like, okay, well, whatever. We don't really care about Afrin, even though we are supporting the YPG in other parts of Syria. And the YPG is also in Afrin, which had consequences because it meant that the Kurds were sending reinforcements to Afrin, which uh, defocused the fight on ISIS. Which has led to because it re- wasn't quite done. Yeah, it wasn't over. And now we're seeing a reemergence of ISIS. It's like that damn game of, of Risk, except actually deadly. Where like you thought you finished off the one guy, and then the other guy stabs you in the back, and you have to turn around, and then that one little guy sitting on Australia can just build up his troops and then come back at you. It's just like that. It is. I'm really mad because ISIS still has a foothold. I, I yeah, it's awful, um, and. Now Turkey has consolidated its hold on a friend. It's like, we need to clear the entire border of Tur- with Turkey, with Turkey and Syria, of this Kurdish terrorist presence. So we're going to go to Manbij next. They've been very vocal about it. And the U.S. is like, listen, guys, we support the Kurds in Manbij. You can't march here. So this has been a really critical test of uh, U.S.-Turkish relations. And it remains to be seen what happens. Um, I have my own guesses. I've written about it some in geopolitical futures, but that's the thing to watch for in northern Syria. In southern Syria, in Damascus, uh, you may have, may have heard of this place called Eastern Ghouta, which was in the news a couple of weeks ago. Unless you're Gary Johnson, then you have no idea. <sighs> Sorry, yes. I continue. Uh, many, the, the way the news was covering it uh, appropriately was hundreds and hundreds of civilians were getting killed in these just indiscriminate shelling yeah and you think it's just awful the horrors of war uh why would russia and assad do this and what's what's even more horrible about it is that there's a logic to it all and that's that's what's even more depressing in my mind um assad does not want turkey invading its country and iran wants it even less because iran and turkey are historical enemies they have fought for hundreds of years and Iran supports Assad, Iran would much prefer to stop Turkey in Syria before it gets too close to Iran. 
So Iran would like Assad to move more of its forces to the north as a blocking force to Turkey's invasion so that Turkey can't get too far into Syria. The problem is there's still, or there's still no longer, there was a rebel resistance in this eastern suburb of Damascus called Eastern Ghouta. Yeah, surprisingly close to the capital. Very close, and they had held the territory for years. Assad's been trying to retake it for a long time. The nice way, quote-unquote nice way. And right after the invasion of a friend by Turkey, you saw this massive step up in indiscriminate bombings of eastern Ghouta. Gloves came off. He said, I, like, he said, I absolutely have to clear these guys from my backfield so that I can go deal with literally another country invading me. Yeah. And um, it's worked. There is, there's an agreement. Either, it was either today or yesterday where the remaining rebels in eastern Ghouta agreed to leave and hand over uh, control to Assad. Um, and I, I cannot believe this, but in exchange for free passage to Idlib, which is a territory in the north where Turkish proxies are fighting. So Turkish is supporting, Turkey is supporting these rebels that the rebels leaving Damascus are now going to go join the fight with and resist Assad's offensive in Idlib. So Assad is attacking Idlib. Turkey is fighting back against Assad. And Assad's like, okay. If you guys leave Damascus, we'll let you go fight us elsewhere in the country. So that happened. And now Assad controls Damascus, except for ISIS, which now right. controls a suburb in Damascus. And that's one of the places they've reemerged. Um, and my fuck ISIS moment of the day is they took this territory. It's not a big territory. It's a, it's a small suburb. And one of the first things they did is they went to a Palestinian refugee camp uh, near Yarmouk and immediately executed two people for being apostates. Fuck ISIS. Fuck ISIS. Should we go somewhere else? Yeah, let's go somewhere else. Uh, Speaking of Russia getting involved, uh, Putin, uh, congratulations, I guess, (laughs) uh, recently won re-election with a resounding and I'm sure very credible (laughs) 75% of the vote. I'm so surprised. I'm so shocked, yes. So... um, of course, Russia is a place where uh, if you disagree with Putin, you're not really allowed to run for election anyway, and you'll probably die of polonium, nerve gas, or some other horrible, horrible way to go. And of course, uh, there have been two attacks on former Russian, uh, or sorry, one former Russian spy and one former Russian diplomat, I think. In the UK? In the UK. Uh, and the UK, the United States, and Germany have gotten together saying, oh, you can't do that. You can't just go nerve-gassing people. And, of course, Russia's response was, we did not nerve-gas anyone. You must have nerve-gassed them. That is literally the official Russian response. Is like the only reasonable explanation for what happened, for why this outspoken critic of Putin died in the UK of nerve-gas, was that Theresa May... Was the one that nerve-gassed him. It totally wasn't us guys. It's a setup against the Russians. It's a setup. They're just framing us. I So anyway, the, um, so relations between, relations between the West and Russia have degraded even further than they were. And what's interesting is Russia becomes increasingly sort of like diplomatically isolated in the West. But they seem to understand that they still have some leverage, in particular with oil and gas uh, shipments out west because um, 
you know, because they do feel the confidence to be able to make these kinds of moves, deal with the diplomatic repercussions over and over again, and then move on. Yeah. Uh, there aren't probably aren't going to be any real consequences for Russia, and to some extent, because of the kind of nationalist. Um, kind of jingoist style of campaigning that Putin has um, that has been so successful for him, you know, the angrier the West gets for Russia running around murdering people in Britain, probably the better it is for kind of like the, like, go Russia rah-rah thing. Indeed. Um, I really don't have a lot to add to that. Yeah, I mean, Russia is going to be a thing, like, Russia is going to be a player that gets away with uh, acting poorly repeatedly um again one because it doesn't care so it doesn't have the the internal repercussions of being a pariah that some other state would like if denmark became a pariah they might be very upset about that and elect someone else uh, russia possibly the opposite is true but as long as they continue to have uh you know leverage through oil and gas to the west there's really only so much the west can do um and as we talked about in an earlier podcast episode, the long-term economics for Russia continue to not be good. So with all these, you know, uh, Putin has been making a lot of moves. He took Crimea. Uh, he's gotten bogged down in eastern Ukraine. It still hasn't quite gotten out, gotten out. He's trying to, like, show that he can project power in Syria, even though it benefits Iran far more than it benefits Russia. Um, to some extent, the... Like these moves that Russia has invested in don't have a whole lot of long-term strategic mm. benefit, even though they have had substantial short-term, like internal domestic political benefit, and have kept Putin in power. Indeed. Um, and those, the only potential long-term strategic benefit I can see is that Putin becomes so popular through these kinds of moves that he can try to reform Russia from the inside in a way that were he not as popular, the oligarchs would get him. But now, you know, if you have the kind of victory, like repeated electoral victories that he has, even if, you know, there was some ballot stuffing, you know, here and there, it happens. Um, it gives him the, the capacity to be able to make some moves, even if the oligarchs aren't happy. Right. So he's less hamstrung. There's potential for more reform. It may happen. It may not. Should we talk more about Russia or should we go elsewhere? Let's go elsewhere. All right, where do you want to go? Um, looking at the map. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Columbia. So yeah. last time we talked, 
PCO was happening again. Has it happened? I don't even know. Is it done? Is FARC out of the picture? It's complicated. Ah! Oh. The, the peace deal did happen. There was a peace deal. Yeah. Uh, FARC got some stuff in exchange for... FARC, stuff. FARC was the insurgency, uh, the insurgent group in Colombia waging an insurgency for the last 55 years. Longest uh, insurgency in the Western Hemisphere to date, right? Longest war. Lots of people dead, even more displaced. Like yeah. Millions of people have been displaced, internally displaced within Colombia. I, when I was in Colombia, I, I was in a sort of a smaller town outside of Bogota, and I ended up getting sick and went to the doctor, which was a fun experience because uh, first time I went to a doctor in Spanish, mm. and I ended up getting, uh, I had like a stomach something. So I Did got, you get prescribed cocaine? Yes. That <laughs> is where I'm going with this. Um, I was, uh, no, I got like a stomach bug, so they needed to rehydrate me, and they, they, they put me in a room with an IV, and a nun walks in and sits in next to me. Which I know sounds like a setup to a great joke, but I promise you it's not. <laughs> and uh, she, very, she read his last rites. Yeah. Actually, it was dark. <laughs> very, very, very pleasant, very pleasant person. And we got chatting a little bit. Asked her about you know, just what it was like to travel throughout Colombia, and uh, she said that Colombia was the most beautiful place in the world. It is there. There is unimaginable beauty throughout the country, and which makes sense that she's traveled to actually not like just cities within Colombia, but seen the full extent of it. Um, but that war has just destroyed all of it. Um, it's just been it's made life miserable there. So it's really something that's affected the whole country. It's not an isolated incident. And so this peace deal that FARC, which is the biggest insurgent group in Colombia, there are several, made with the government. Um, Geez, when was it? End of 2016 or early 2017? There's complications. I think it got finalized early 2017. Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, so they have begun laying down their arms, and it has been progressing. Um, some fart groups, like subgroups, have not wanted to lay down arms, though. So they've been resisting. That sounds like a losing proposition. Yeah, I know, <laughs> right? But, you know, when you make a lot of money selling drugs, you don't want to stop selling drugs, and uh, yeah. you need guns to defend yourself. And then there's the second biggest insurgent group, ELN, which has kept fighting the government, uh, supposedly, not supposedly, um, because they want to generate more leverage in their negotiations, they've been launching more attacks, including bombings um, and attacks on um, security forces and whatnot. So there is a peace deal moving forward. There's a presidential election coming up, and a lot of people think that the peace deal has not been executed very well. So there is a faction that is calling for a revision to it, uh, or at least harsher implementation of it. So it, it's it's better than it was ten years ago. Well, yeah, yeah. That all that said, uh, my experience in Colombia was lovely. I would like to encourage everyone to go there. Uh, it's it's safe in the major cities. Uh, it's I mean just as safe as any major city in South America. And the Colombian people are the friendliest people I've ever met in my life. So you should go to Colombia. And, and they I, have they have great food. We were just at a Colombian restaurant tonight in Boston, of course. Yeah, it's but very good. Fairly authentic, right? It was. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Delicious. Lots of steak. Um, let's go next door to Venezuela. Cause, so this is this will be a moment for you. Hey, remember when like it was totally front page news that people in Venezuela were protesting the heck out of the... I don't know, brutally repressive socialist government that, or sorry, klepto-socialist government. Klepto-socialist. Yeah, klepto-socialist government of Maduro 
um, you know, Maduro, Kum, uh, Chavez. What happened to that? Did it just get squished? Is it over? Maduro's still in power. Every, yeah, he is. Everyone, including my company, thought that he would fall by the end of last year. But Indeed. But he, he has stayed in power. And the best explanation I have for that so far is to stay in power, you need people willing to follow your orders who have guns. And people with guns will stop following your orders when you stop paying them. Right. So we thought, well, you know, he's running out of money and the price of oil is low and that's the main source of revenue for the state. Someone gave him money. Russia. Russia. Yeah. Russia's been making investments in Venezuelan um, oil fields or oil reserves. And um, yeah. Refinance their debt, right? Yes. Refinance their debt. They've been against all odds, been able to turn, just continually roll over their debt and keep it going. So Maduro's still in power, and it doesn't look like it's cracking anytime soon, but I don't know how it resolves itself, frankly. Right. Because you think that there's a, there's, you know, are there issues long term with actually paying back that debt? You know, you can roll it over, over and over again, but at some point you got to pay it. I mean, yeah, the price of oil is higher now, but it can't stay high forever. Um, So how much money can you generate from that? And at some point, Russia is going to, you know, I presume, stop pumping money into the country because it has its own economic issues. Right. I don't know. I don't have a... I mean, I follow this stuff daily, and I still don't have a great read on how Venezuela plays out, aside from Maduro falls at some point. Um, or maybe he doesn't fall, but there's some sort of transition process where uh, a power-sharing agreement between w- whichever factions he represents and the opposition ag- agree on something. But I just Always works out well. Yeah, right. Um, one thing about political agreements is that no one's ever happy. Yeah. And, and that's a reconsider moment. <laughs> political compromise means doesn't mean that you're happy. It means that neither you nor the person that you were debating with is happy walking away from Oh, yeah. Definitely, as far as I could tell, compromise in America means you did exactly what I wanted. You know, Yeah, when... that's not how compromise works. No. But compromise is the best alternative. Indeed. Because the alternative is just yelling at each other and using wedging Or rhetoric. murdering all, as we talked about in a previous episode uh, about punching Nazis. Punching Nazis. As you recall, the only successful way to get rid of your opposition, besides convincing them through eloquence to change their minds, is to murder all of them. Yes. Everything in between backfires. That worked out great for all the communist regimes. Indeed. Sorry, personal bias. I don't really think communism worked out well generally in history. That's all I got. I'm told it wasn't. I'm told the 24 different major implementations of communism that ended poorly were just poorly implemented. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm told. Every time communism was implemented, it just didn't happen to be implemented the way it was supposed to, even though it was. Yeah. Anyway, we don't like communism. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. That I can't help myself. We'll move past that. Okay. Speaking of uh, speaking of countries with questionable finances, let's go over to Greece. I'm just looking for, you know, we're popping around. We're looking for reasons. So, Greece, here's something that I don't know. Um, you know, Greece was also something that was in the headlines because they were dead broke. Dead broke. And, uh, you know, austerity and collapsing economy, and they owed the Germans a bunch of money. And, you know, uh, it's not on fire. Now, I know Greece has sold, like, a lot of its assets, but is there a, are they on their way out? Is it just become the new norm for them to be totally broke? 
or they you know it seems like the 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 crisis didn't turn into like chaos and people with pitchforks in the streets going after the you know the uh bourgeoisie to grab their money and such like that so what's going on there do we know yeah, well, one of the big challenges in Greece was the IMF didn't want to agree to provide much much bailout funding unless a number of conditions were met. So Germany was kind of left on the hook um, for a while. Later on, I, some of the IMF's conditions were met, and they kind of shifted on their conditions a little bit. So they actually agreed to match some of Germany's funding, which was kind of Germany's precondition towards additional funding above and beyond the funding they already provided. So Greece ended up getting more bailout funds and mm. uh, free money. That free money that needs to get repaid in theory. Oh, okay. So uh, free money. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Got it. Um, they implemented austerity measures. The economy is hurt. Um, and as I understand it, I mean they're not out of the. They're they're not free and clear. They're still going to need. I mean, I don't think they're insolvent. I think they can pay their interest right now. I don't quote <sighs> me on that, but yeah. it's not. You know. They're still struggling. They st- they're still implementing the austerity measures required by their lenders to in order to attempt to service their debt. I actually think the more interesting thing about Greece going on right now is the resurgent rivalry with Turkey. Oh, I was thinking Macedonia. Oh, Macedonia is also a thing. But funny enough, Turkey is supporting Macedonia's EU bid because Turkey doesn't like Greece. Shocking. Yes, right. Yes, well... I, I don't know why Turkey doesn't like Greece. I don't know what Greece ever did to Turkey. Uh, well... Oh, uh, World War One? Well, kind of. Kind of. If, if you go before that, Greece was a territory of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. That in the mid-19th century, following all those romantic revolutions in France and Europe, the Balkans kind of said, Hey, that revolution stuff sounds like a kind of a good idea. I feel more like a Greek than I do an Ottoman, so uh, let's make our own nation. Uh, sounds pretty good, right? Sounds easy. We was going pretty good about 2,000 years ago. Why shouldn't we revert back to something like that? Yeah, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. Seems like they had it all figured out. They beat the Persians. Things were grand. Yeah. Um, so they rebelled, and Greece was one of the first Balkan territories to break away from the Ottoman Empire, which put an enormous amount of stress, stress on the Ottoman Empire because the Balkans was... Uh, one, one of the main sources of revenue for, for the Ottomans. They were already on the retreat by the 19th century. The, yeah. the Ottoman Empire was really contracting as of sort of early in the 18th century. Dude, you know you're having a bad time when the Balkans are your main source of revenue. Yeah, this is valid. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, so that went on for a while, and then more Balkan nation states succeeded following Greece's example. Um, and the Ottoman Empire shrank, 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 shrank until World War One, uh, and then it got dissolved immediately after that, or very soon after that. It actually wasn't 1918; it was like 1923. Indeed, but, uh, that's not incredibly relevant. And then Ataturk shows up, genocide, Turkey. Yeah, no, that's that's really what happened, right? There's yeah. there's a lot of Turks left over in Greece and the Balkans from when the Ottoman Empire was in the Balkans for several hundreds of years. Right. And there's lots of Greeks living in Turkey uh, because we've been of, living there for thousands of years. Yes. Although when the Ottomans took the Balkans, one of the things they did was force repopulations. They did. So a lot of Greeks ended up in Turkey, or what was then Anatolia. Right. The region within the Ottoman Empire called. But then after the Turkish Revolution, they just forced, moved them back to Greece. Yeah, they're like, you know what? 
this whole Ottoman Empire thing was great. It was multicultural, but it doesn't exist anymore. And the we're going way... for ethnostate now. Yeah, homogeneous ethnostate. We're Turks. Yeah, and you're not. So get out. Yeah. And there were massacres on both sides. Oh, it was terrible. Greeks killed a lot of Turks. Turks killed a lot of Greeks. And uh, the one thing to remember about the Balkans and the Caucasus both is that everyone kills everyone else. And the numbers might be more or less on one side or another. Mm. We certainly are on, on Turkey side when it comes to the Armenian genocide. But plenty of Armenians slaughtered Turks before the genocide happened too. So it means everyone's got a victim story. Yeah. Everyone can make anyone else the enemy if they want to. Exactly. The, the geopolitical rationale behind it is Greece is not a single block of land on the continent. It has lots and lots and lots of little islands in the Aegean Sea, which is sort of the northeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, which is right next to Turkey. And Turkey would very much like to have that whole area secure for itself. It would be very nice. It would be very nice, especially Cyprus, because I don't know if you've heard, but Cyprus, just in the last year, I think it was the year, maybe it's the last two years, lots of new natural gas reserves off Cyprus that can potentially supply fuel for all of Europe. Really? Yeah. That's a lot. That's what the uh, head of ENI said the other day, which is the Italian yeah, yeah, yeah. oil and gas company. Oh, sorry. You're telling our listeners. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. Obviously, I know what that is. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, so Turkey wants to control the eastern Mediterranean because the eastern Mediterranean has been really critical for its security throughout the Ottoman times. There's also this natural resource thing. Mm. And if Turkey can sell natural gas to Europe, that does two things for Turkey. One, it gives them revenue in Turkey's economy having some challenges yeah. it's grown a lot but it's grown a lot with inflation and lots of external debt which is dangerous because the lira is becoming cheap and cheap currency makes it hard to repay debt in other currencies um mm. so more revenue would be swell then also as you mentioned russia sells a lot of natural gas to europe yeah so if turkey can start providing natural gas to europe instead of russia russia has been turkey's other historical enemy besides iran indeed all throughout the 18th century, like 12 wars they fought with Russia in the yeah. course of 100 years. And Turkey would sure love to be able to put the economic pressure on Russia by supplying Europe with an alternate source of natural gas. More like an economic knife right into the gut. Right into the gut. Yeah, it's bad stuff. So that's one of the more interesting things going on with Greece right now. There's been a lot. I mean, so Cyprus is half Turkey, half Greece. Uh, the one, tur- yeah, 50% Turkish, 50% Greek. 100% mayhem. <laughs> I'd watch that movie. Uh, the the Turkish part of Cyprus. Oh God, it's like an 80 it would be like an yep. 80s buddy cop film where you have the Muslim Turk and the Christian oh. Greek cop working together in Cyprus to like, you know, stop the Russians stop the from Russians. Yeah, I there we go. Hollywood, if you're listening, you know what to do. They solve the crime, and at the end of the movie, they have their arms around each other and then start stabbing each other in the gut. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, where was I going with this? Cyprus something, something, something. Cyprus is half Greek, half Turkish, and... Uh, North Korea! Uh, I guess we had to cover that one, and didn't we? So there's yeah, I mean, it is renewed a thing. conflict where... I think it's Otherwise, there was did a... Did you know that saying it's a thing is a thing? Yeah, you did. <laughs> where else are we going? I hate that. Good. Okay, so... North Korea. So what I know of recently, here's what's happened. And of course, it hasn't gotten as much news because you just don't sell as many ads with clicks or whatever the sales channel is these days uh, with with 
nuance as you do with, oh my God, we're literally all going to die. There's going to be literally World War Three, and we're all going to get nuked to death. Hey, Eric, did what? you know that literally we're all going to die and there's going to be World War Three, and we're all going to be nuked to death? Buy our program. I don't, I don't know what we're selling, but you should buy it. Yes, buy it. Buy. So, um, recently, Donald Trump has offered to talk to North Korea. This was at the beginning of the month, which is the last time I was in touch with it. Um, and what had happened was, you know, obviously after a bunch of a, a year of posturing between Kim and Trump, uh, as well as three, which is, I think, a record for East Asia, three U.S. aircraft carrier battle groups being sent to the Korean Peninsula area at the same time. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, new sanctions put on North Korea. Uh, the South Korean government reported to the White House in Washington that North Korea said, you know what, we weren't willing to talk about taking nukes off the table or putting nukes on the table. We weren't willing to put our nuclear program on the table for talks before, but you know what? We are now. We'd love to chat. And of course, Donald Trump being Donald Trump, the commissioner businessman, he's like, yeah, sure. Let's talk. Yeah, that sounds great. And then people are like, oh my God, should we even be talking? Is that a good idea? Because, you know, you put Trump and Kim in the same room and alone and let them just go. Like, who knows what's going to happen, right? So uh, there's been a lot of criticism of that and... Of course, there's been, there's been, if you're a, you know, if you're a liberal, you're saying, well, Fox News didn't like it when Obama offered to talk to Kim, and now they love it that Trump's would talk to Kim. And if you're conservative, you're saying, well, CNN loved it when Obama wanted to talk to Kim and hated it when Trump wants to talk to Kim. Like, yes, okay, I get it. Everyone's an idiot. But <laughs> the question is, is it actually a good idea? And what's actually going to happen now that Trump said some stuff because we all know he loves to change his mind? As I understand it, Kim never offered to stop the nuclear program. He offered to stop ICBM testing. Ah, okay. Which is actually, I think, a pretty important distinction because let's say that's a precondition that's met. Trump's like, eh, okay, fine. ICBM tests, stopping, we'll take oh, that. Oh, as a precondition? Kim said he'd be willing to stop ICBM tests in order to have talks. Okay. And you can imagine a situation where North Korea is like, all right, you know what? We're going to stop nuclear tests. That'll be our agreement. We'll stop ICBM tests. And ICBMs are the things that threaten the U.S. because they are intercontinental ballistic missiles. They are not the only kind of ballistic missiles. There are intermediate-range ballistic missiles and medium-range ballistic missiles, all of which can hit Japan and Korea. <laughs> and maybe some of them Guam, but not certainly the U.S. homeland. So... But it's really just if you don't have the ability to hit the United States homeland, they don't care. You like nuking Guam. It's just such a bad idea. Like yeah. that is a death sentence. It's true. Or a suicide. There we go. Whatever. So, uh, I think the agreement that's on the table right now might possibly end up in the U.S. clearing its its western coast from ICBM capabilities while leaving Japan exposed to MRBM or IRBM capabilities, um, which is interesting. Uh, but the, the current status of this, as I understand it, is South Korea sent a delegation up to North Korea, met with Kim personally, uh, over dinner with him and his sister, who was down in the Winter Olympics. The, oh, yeah. She um, was the one that everyone liked for some reason. Yeah. Even though she's a brutal dictator. Yeah. Well, sister of a brutal dictator. Fine. Yeah. Benefit part of the brutal dictatorship family. Yeah. I don't know what was going on with that. 
I remember reading an article that's like, you know, Kim Jong-un's sister outshines VP Mike Pence. It's like, why are we comparing these two humans? Like, what is going on? I don't understand. On the one hand, Mike Pence is an older gentleman who has lost his looks. And on the other hand, while Kim Jong-un's sister is younger and potentially more attractive, also oversees uh, concentration camps with hundreds of thousands of people detained in them. Yeah. So, you know, it's really incomparable. Mike Pence loses. Exactly. <laughs> just like, I don't... I don't. I have. I have no idea where that came from, but I kept seeing it over and over again. Oh, it's God. like let's talk about these two people in the same sentence. We should let the pundits think for us, Eric. Kim Jong Un's sister. Anyways, yeah. so South Korea sent this delegation up to North Korea. I think it was the foreign minister met directly with Kim Jong Un over dinner. It was a very publicized meeting, yeah. and it is very rare, if not unique, for Kim Jong Un to meet with a, with a South Korean delegation publicly. This is an unusual thing. Huh. And now South Korean President Moon is either slated or will be slated very soon to meet directly with Kim Jong-un. Wow, as well. cool. And apparently Finland has agreed to allow it to be the site of a meeting between South Korea, the U.S., and North Korea. So uh, Scandinavia, man, they're the home of the best metal in the world, and they're just like solving the world's problems. Ex oh, the best metal. You mean the music. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. of course. No, they have, they have the best iron ore in all of the... I actually don't know, know if they, they have, have iron ore. They could have had, like, palladium <laughs> reserves or something. Uh, yeah, no, man. Finland, bringing, bringing the world together and uh, giving us head-thrashing metal. What else do you need? Switzerland is feeling left out. For reals. I mean, if Finland's taking all of their, like, international tense meetings away, what do they have left? Banking and skiing. Chocolate? Try and chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, but Norway, obviously better at skiing. We saw at the Olympics, what, 38 medals or something crazy? True story. In a country of 5 million people. <laughs> it's true. So, like, everyone now knows someone who has a medal. Um, indeed. All uh, right. One else? more country before yeah. we let you guys go. What's it going to be? It's going to be... We've been in the Middle East. We've been in Asia. Mm-hmm. We've kind of been in northern South America. We've been in Africa. We've been in Europe. South Asia. What's going on there right now? Like we know India and Pakistan are like kind of constantly staring at each other, like with fingers poised over nuclear buttons of various sizes, of obviously. Various sizes, Some yes. people have larger nuclear buttons than others. <laughs> but but poised <sighs> over the nuclear button, ready to blow each other up. Is, has anything happened lately there, or do they have this like kind of detente going on? So the thing that India and Pakistan actually fight, fight over in terms of a hot, hot fighting, so actual people getting killed, is Kashmir. Yeah. And that has seen an increase in violence and in incidents recently. Tell me why it is not obvious which country parts of Kashmir belong to. Well, like this this line was drawn in 1948 yeah. during the partition. Like it was drawn. Well, one side claimed it was part of theirs, and the other side claimed it was part of theirs, and they didn't agree on it. From 1948 onward. Don't, wow, it was badly done. Don't quote me on that. I think right. that's right. I think they've been fighting about it since then, but I actually don't know 100. Um, percent But there has been more fighting over it recently. Right, and you can't go King Solomon on it and just cut the baby in half. Right. right. Um, what else is going on here? I can tell you, or I can tell our listeners what I told you earlier about their nuclear doctrine. I can tell you about China's relations with Pakistan. 
The nuclear doctrine thing is an interesting tidbit while I think about another country's recent events to talk about. Okay, so here's how it goes. Pakistan and India are both nuclear powers. India is a stronger, wealthier country than Pakistan. doesn't mean it's wealthy. It just means it's wealthier. And they therefore have a much more substantial conventional military force. So when Pakistan first developed nuclear weapons, they developed a first-strike doctrine because they knew they would never be able to actually repel India's conventional force with Pakistani conventional forces. First-strike doctrine meaning you invade us, we nuke you. Right. So India came up with this opposing doctrine called Cold Start where they said, okay, well, if something happens, we'll do conventional invasion, but it'll be up to and before the line that Pakistan has drawn that calls for a nuclear strike. So we won't actually cross that line, but we'll go as far as we need to to achieve some sort of limited strategic goal that we can call a win or that actually secures whatever defense uh, objectives we need. Pakistan said, hmm, that seems like a loophole. So what we're going to do is introduce a new sort of modified doctrine called full-spectrum deterrence, which is, I guess, a subset of credible minimal deterrence, which means this. You, India, if you invade, we are keeping our first strike doctrine, but we're not going to just bomb one of your cities because that seems pretty serious for, like, a potentially limited invasion. Ups the ante a little bit, yeah. Yeah, right? Instead, what we'll do is we'll use tactical nuclear weapons, which are, like, battlefield nuclear weapons of a lower yield. Small stuff. Smaller stuff. Yeah. Still potentially tens of kilotons, which are bigger than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, all Um, right. We will use tactical nuclear weapons to destroy all of your forces on the field. And... If you retaliate with a second use, our doctrine will be third-use strategic nuclear war, uh, weapons, which means that if you use nuclear warheads in response to our first-strike nuclear attack, we will then destroy your cities with nuclear weapons. I don't know. That's that's. I actually don't know if that's the current situation, but that's what I've been reading about today. This is the logic of mutually assured destruction. It's, it's crazy. It's worked so far. Technically, it has, yeah. And, but the thing is, it's one of those things... That it literally needs to work every single time, no yeah. matter what, because you screw it up once, we're all dead. Yes. Uh, we should do a show on nuclear theory. Yeah, it is really interesting. People studied this, obviously, for a long time during the Cold War because it's like, well, we've got a bunch of nukes pointed at us. We've got a bunch of nukes pointed at them. How do we actually set this up in a way such that, one, we don't all blow each other up, and two, I mean, like literally everyone dies— and two, the th- we really don't want to blow each other up, but also it's sufficiently credible that we might be willing to blow you up so that you don't invade Western Europe. Yeah. And boy, oh boy, was balancing that hard. And the thing is, like, one of the things about history that I, I like to think about is we never really imagine the stuff that... We, we struggle to imagine the stuff that didn't happen. Mm. So, for example, think if... And I know I'm going off topic here, but I think it's relevant to a lot of... It's always relevant to stuff today when you think about responses. Um, You know, and the magnitude of either proposed or actual responses. Imagine if... I'm going to say the H word here. Imagine if Hitler, when he invaded Poland, France and Britain were like, all right, fuck that. And they just invaded Germany. And it was over. It would have been kind of like... I mean, except the fact that they're bloody Nazis, but like the Nazis wouldn't have even gotten that kind of reputation. They would have just been like normal fascists. 
Right, you think like the Mussolini fascists, everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, like they were fascists, but like not that bad fascists. I mean, like they weren't like, you know, like they yeah, were Italian fascists, you know, on their scooters, like child. And, you know, drinking coffee and just working hard and, you know, you know, uh, but, but, you know, it just would have been, it just would have been over. Yeah. And that's it. And we would have, like, the Nazis would have been a goddamn footnote in history, as opposed to, like, you know, the thing that made History Channel make money. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so sometimes you think about stuff such as Russia invading Crimea, mm-hmm. and you go, like, oh, is this worthy of a military response? And you might think, like, well, that seems a little outrageous, but, like... At what point do you need to have a bit of an overwhelming response in order to prevent the worst thing later from happening? Yeah. Right? Because one of the things Germany did really well in the lead up to World War II is they just did stuff that was like, you know, I, of course he had, he had uh, been to, I forget the conference, but he had seen that they were worms, right? That Chamberlain and De Gaulle were, not De Gaulle, whoever Neville. it was. Chamberlain. Never, never Ch- Neville Chamberlain and whoever was in charge of France at the time. He saw they were worms. And he was right, because they weren't willing to actually put cards on the table and like go through military force in order to stop him from gaining greater and greater advantage before he finally enacted his evil plan. It's like super duper evil plan. And so you think about, for example, um, you know, the United States considering its response to Russia. You think about, for example, like Turkey using military force to try to counter Iran in Syria. You think about Saudi Arabia using military force to counter Iran in Yemen and stuff like this. And it's all brutal, miserable stuff. But I would make the case that the worst, most destructive, most horrible and shameful period of human history was allowed to happen because good people did not have the courage and the gumption to use military force mm. when it would have saved the world from that horror. And so that's the hard part, is when horror of that magnitude doesn't happen, you don't notice it. So all you notice is the yeah. military force that was deployed, and you can't guarantee that the military force that was deployed by the quote-unquote good guys did stop that horror because you didn't see the horror. Yeah. So you can criticize, you can whine, you can throw rocks, and you can say, oh, maybe we should just like give peace a chance, man. Or maybe we shouldn't be so active. Like All of this war, it's bad. But what we don't know, what we cannot count, and therefore we, you know, we can only guess at is what is being prevented what horrors are being prevented and have been prevented throughout history by the willingness to, you know, enforce deterrence. And I happen to be a big fan of um, the first Gulf War, mm. 1991. Sure. I think that was one of the most important moves in history, in recent history of, okay, the Cold War's over. Saddam Hussein goes, ah, Cold War's over. All bets are off. Now I get to do what I want. I'm going to invade Kuwait. And the United States is like, absolutely not. We're going to put together a coalition and we're going to curb stomp you. And it was bloody and people died and it was terrible. And it enforced the notion of deterrence. That wasn't just about deterring invasion of a neighboring country. It was about protecting Saudi oil fields that at the time the U.S. was still highly dependent on. 
So the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq was actually a direct threat to the United mm. States. It wasn't just, hey, let's preserve this international order, which was part of it. Yeah. It was, you're in Kuwait. Kuwait borders Saudi Arabia. That's a direct threat to how we get a lot of our oil in, in the early 90s. Wait, but doesn't Iraq like already border Saudi Arabia? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. Iraq directly borders Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia's oil fields are in the Persian Gulf. Oh, right, yeah. And the rest of it is just desert. Yeah. So who cares? Yeah, if Iraq invades the middle of Saudi Arabia, it doesn't get to oil necessarily. Okay, fine, fine, yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so we have taken you on a rapid fire tour of the world and what's going on as of today, this March 22nd. 2018, and I'm sure you'll hear about it a few days later. We are off to ConsiderCon. Uh, Xander, it was a ton of fun getting to blab with you. It's always a ton of fun getting to blab about the world yeah. with you, brah. So remember, dear listeners, don't let the pundits or even us in our moments of weakness do the thinking for you as much as we'd love to. Pause, reconsider, and always challenge us. So if there's anything you heard today that you'd like to ask more about, challenge, discuss, etc., let us know. Uh, Twitter, ReconsiderPod. Facebook, ReconsiderPod. We'd love to hear from you. This is Eric signing off. This is Andrew signing off. We'll see you next time, folks. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade.